It was as simple as having this fear that was driving me to be the best in the world, to be the most successful surfer, because that's how I had defined success. That's how I had defined not only success, but being worthy or, or just being enough, actually. That's how I defined it. I'm not going to be enough until I become the best. Welcome to Claiming Your Confidence, the podcast. I'm Katrina Blowers, and as a journalist, speaker, and mentor, I know what it's like to have confidence. I also know what it's like to have to dig really deep and find it all over again. I've interviewed hundreds of high-profile people, and this is what I know for sure. We all suffer fear, imposter syndrome, and self-doubt, no matter how shiny our life appears to be. So let's reframe the confidence conversation together and uncover the hacks and secrets to get more of it. Claiming your confidence starts now. Lane Beachley has navigated her way through some big waves, both personally and professionally, to win the Women's Surfing World Championship seven times. Lane says it's choice, not chance, that determines our destiny, and we all need to wake up and quote, own our shit to live a life we love. In this incredible chat, you'll learn how she killed off her self-sabotaging thoughts to think like a world champion, the importance of having honesty barometers around you, and the daily mantras you can start saying to yourself to shift your subconscious and create your heart's desires. Let's claim our confidence with Lane Beachley. Hello, Lane. I'm really thrilled you're joining me. Thank you, Katrina. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Yeah, look, we um, first connected really through, we, we both did a fundraising event with Lifeline earlier this year and you were just so generous in reaching out and um, just the outpouring of gratitude that you showed me. I was like, wow, you know, like it's just lovely I think, you know, thank you is such a simple thing to say, but not a lot of people say it. So you really stood out to me for doing that. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You know what? Um, when I was in high school, there's one thing that really stuck with me, and that was my geography teacher in year nine uh, taught me the importance of saying thank you because, you know, people do things to make themselves and others feel good. But to know that the 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 random act or the act of doing something or the act of kindness has actually been recognised makes you want to do it again. So it's really Mm. simple to say thank you. It is. It is, and it means so much. Now, we begin each episode of the podcast by asking people what they're wearing and where they are so people listening can get a picture of you in their mind. So what have you got on? Okay, well, I have um, some white leather sketches with a rose gold toe with some black Oakley socks, some black Oakley tights, a uh, Victoria's Secret kind of T-shirt bra with a white long sleeve shirt and a like a burgundy red and white polka dot uh, style jumper, which Kirk refers to as my jockey jumper. Don't you love men and their description of fashion? <laughs> yes, especially my very fashion-focused, conscious husband. Oh, yes. Um, and where I am is I'm sitting in my office. So my office is a newly renovated addition to our home. 
and it, we overlook Freshwater Beach on the northern beaches of Sydney. Oh, how stunningly divine. What a beautiful part of the world. Yeah, you must almost pinch yourself. You have spent so much of your life in that neck of the woods, though, haven't you? I mean, that's yes. kind of ingrained in your psyche in a way. Yes, it is. So, you know, I think of it because I know a lot of people who have moved from their homeland and now live in Australia. And I think oh, there's nowhere else in the world I can ever consider living. I mean, I did live in Hawaii for four years with my boyfriend before I married Kirk. And Ken lived right on the beach at Sunset Beach. So it was literally ideal. However, um, I still could never consider living anywhere else but here on the northern beaches of Sydney. Now, you have the most incredible life story, which I know um, we were sort of chatting off air and laughing that you are probably getting a little bit sick of telling it and retelling it. But I think that's because you've had so many ups and downs and navigated through so many extraordinary circumstances and um, come out like you just when I think about you, it it just the image of pure sunshine just comes into (laughs) my mind. And now you are kind of sharing those life lessons that you've learned through um, a a new program, which I'm really excited to talk to you about a bit later on. But you began surfing at the age of four, and I don't think I could even stand on a surfboard at four years of age. So, Mm -hmm. you know, given given that this um, podcast is talking about confidence, Mm. you must have had like, you must have been a pretty spunky little kid. I was a feisty little competitive kid. I had an older brother who was five years older than me, Jason, and any girl that grows up with an older brother, they just want to do what their older brother's doing. And I can honestly say I do it a whole lot better than he does. I, uh, he was a he was a surfer. He still does surf. Actually, he rides a longboard. And my dad was a surfer or was a surfer. And uh, surfing is obviously ingrained in our DNA. So I'm very grateful that I grew up with a beach loving family. Yeah, I I was reading about how you were saying, you know, at the time growing up in Manly, all your mates would be out on a Friday night at the Corso, you know, when you got a bit older. And I'm thinking too, like when you were younger, like all your friends would have been playing Cabbage Patch Kids and all that stuff that was kind of in at the time. Were there many female friends that you had at the time that were into surfing? No, none. (laughs) Zero. Zero. Actually, I didn't actually find a friend who was a female that I was able to surf with until I was 14, and that's when I was at an all-girls high school called McKellar Girls High, and I found a girl who was a year older than me, and she was a surfer. Her name's Faye Allen, and uh, I bought my first fiberglass surfboard from her, actually, and she became like my mentor and surfing buddy, and then... Um, then Pam Burridge would come back from the tour occasionally, so there'd be another woman out there. But yeah, in those early years, those formidable years, there was no other female influence in my life. So, you know, even when you were like, say, from ages four to eight, I think you you decided you wanted to be world champion at about eight years of age. But from those years, the discipline to not go along to whatever your friends were doing on the weekend, but to go to the beach instead is pretty extraordinary. Yeah, and when I reflect back on those times, I realised that my clarity of vision gave me the discipline. I didn't feel like I was missing out on anything or or compromising anything. I actually knew I was consciously choosing. And just through that observation and reflection alone, that was what gave me the confidence to go after my dreams because 
I feel that most people kind of step back because they think it has to be one or the other or they feel like if I do that, then I'm not going to belong there or if I miss out on that, then I'm going to lose that opportunity and the scarcity mentality slips into the equation. Whereas for me, it's like, this is what I'm going after. This is what I want. Who's with me? (laughs) (laughs) Well, some of the people who weren't with you at the time were the local boys. And I can't believe how mean they were to you. They were horrible. Bastards. (laughs) (laughs) And just generally, when I was reading a bit about you, even when you were older and you would go along to, you know, proper competitions where people should have a bit of professionalism, the the things that the guys would say to you, such as, oh, the waves are really shit now, so the girls can go in. And that was the accepted way of just operating for for years and years. I'm I'm gobsmacked by that. That was the norm. And that was women surfing in the 70s, 80s and 90s. And there's a great movie coming out very soon called Women Can't Surf. And it's a documentary about the plight of female women or female surfers in the 70s, 80s and 90s and what we endured and the hostility and the threats and the disrespect and the chauvinism and the sexism and yeah, it doesn't put men in a very positive light, but it certainly shines a positive light on our perseverance and tenacity and our ability to overcome those setbacks and challenges to establish the platform for the future generations, which are the current generation are benefiting from today. And I bet too, um, you probably were so used to having to surf in those really terrible waves that it probably made you a better surfer. Well, I grew up in Manly. We're not really renowned for world-class surf. (laughs) And I feel that actually became a competitive advantage because every surfer can surf well in great waves, but it takes a really great surfer to surf well in bad waves. And that's where I honed my skills was in really substandard conditions the majority of the time. And so I was able to rise to the challenge of surfing substandard waves and it changed my approach to the waves. And most surfers who surf, you know, they grow up surfing perfect point break, for example, when they get to a beach break that's howling on shore and really shitty to look at, they almost get defeated in their own minds. Whereas I'm like, okay, this is very familiar to me. I'm ready to stand up and, and take this on. And uh, growing up in Manly, we had a, a really broad variety of conditions from really good to really bad. And I just had to adapt to those on a daily basis. So adaptability and adapting to change is, was definitely one of my strong points. So when you're young and you're paddling out on your board and you're little, you're petite mm. like me, um, and you, you're out there, probably the only girl out there. Uh, mm. And these, these guys are being really awful to you, splashing water in your face and telling you, you don't belong there. Mm. Where did you go to dig deep? Uh, did you have anyone to have your back or did you, like, what did you tell yourself to keep going out there? Well, once again, that clarity of vision and the desire to be the best in the world is what fueled the confidence to stand up and fight for what I believed in. I also recognised that I needed to surround myself with surfers who are better than me for me to be better. If we just surround ourselves with people who are maybe not as skilled as we are, then we tend to drop to that level and we don't rise. And I had a great bunch of guys around me who I referred to as my honesty barometers and my dream team that brought the best out of me and challenged me and held me accountable for when I was potentially sabotaging myself. And for every one of those guys that gave me a hard time, which they were the minority, 
there was a bunch of guys who believed in me more than I believed in myself. So I, I learned the value of allies. And at the time, the only allies I could find evidence of were male. So I've had a lot of male mentors, a lot of male allies in my life. And the best way to find a, an ally in the water is to find the alpha male. And uh, the alpha male is normally the best or the biggest surfer in the water. And you make friends with him and then he becomes your ally. Then you know someone's got you back on, on every occasion. <laughs> That's a good plan. <laughs> <laughs> I did piss a few people off because I didn't understand the natural pecking order or etiquette of the ocean. So I was cutting in on guys while they were cutting on me. And, you know, I was very, I was very spirited, very spicy, very competitive, gave as good as I got. Um, sometimes I did paddle in with my tail tucked firmly between my legs and tears in my eyes because the, the hostility was just too much. But, you know, majority of the time I felt supported and encouraged and chose to just, you know, keep fighting and keep getting out there and just keep showing them what I've got, keep proving them to proving to them that I've got what it takes to be the best in the world. Amazing, incredible, and would have taken a lot of energy as a young kid doing that as well, a lot of self-talk, I'm sure. Mm. Um, Now, I I want to talk a little bit, uh, I know you've spoken about this a lot before, but your mum dying at the age of six, which is a really tough age, I think any age is a tough age to lose your mum, but that's Mm. a tough age because you don't really understand the nature of grief or how how to hold yourself through that. Uh, and then at the age of eight, you discovered you were adopted and um, it, it turned out to be a seminal point in your life. Um, I, I actually really resonated with that, Lane, because it's funny, it, it actually was so poignant to me because that was about the same age for me that I learnt that my dad had adopted me. And no way. Um, Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I always, my mum is my biological mum and she married my step stepdad who um, adopted me and I had no idea until I was about eight and they sat me down and told me that and really bizarrely just like you I took all that messaging on board of not what they were saying to me of you are loved you are wanted we love you so much that we you know your dad wanted to adopt you and make you part of the family but I looked for the negatives of oh well my biological dad abandoned me so I wasn't wanted and I wasn't loved and I kept looking for evidence of that Mm. and I know that that's for you what really galvanized you to become a world champion. Mm. What did it do for you? Um, I think what it did, see, I'm really unpicking this now because Mm -hmm. it only really occurred to me in the last few days of diving deep into your story. I was like, it was like a bit of a slap in the face, actually, Lane. I was like, oh my gosh. Yes. I think I have to go away and dissect this with someone now. (laughs) Whether or not, uh, because I've always been like a high achiever myself and in, you know, like I was always doing public speaking competitions and um, auditioning for plays and like I was in the university debating team when I was in grade eight and, you know, obviously going into television and journalism now. And I wonder whether that was a way of proving my worthiness in a similar sense to you, you know, needing to prove your worth by becoming world champion. Oh, absolutely. That was the, like you said, it was the seminal moment in my life where I decided the only way. So first I had decided that I'd been abandoned. And like you said, I chose to focus on the negatives, which weren't even spoken. It was unspoken. 
Yeah. And the second piece of the puzzle was I had decided that the only way that I was ever going to be deserving of love is if I become the best in the world at something. I had no idea what that was going to be at the time. And those two pivotal thoughts drove me to become not only a one-time but a six-times consecutive world champion. It also made sure that every victory and defeat defined me. So my whole sense of self-worth and identity was wrapped up in every outcome, which creates a very bumpy ride. And it puts so much, you know, pressure and makes everything so high stakes, doesn't it? Yes, yeah, it does. And and it was all unconscious, unfortunately, which is why I, I behaved in a way that was more aligned with my fears than my joys. You know, my, my fear was fear of rejection, so therefore I behaved in a way that gave people a reason to reject me or I rejected them first. Uh, the joy of you know, wanting to be the best in the, in the world and, and make sure people share in that and, you know, the joy of surfing and competing, that that came a very far second to the the dominant feature of fear that really governed my behaviours throughout the the um the majority of my professional surfing career. Yeah, and you've said that the titles one to six were all kind of born out of fear and your seventh title was born out of love. And I'll say probably your eighth title, which is your master's title, which we shouldn't leave off the <laughs> list. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Count as an title, but we'll count it anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um so going back to, you know, having to navigate through through the fearful times and I, I guess especially you've spoken about once you got that first word world title and you've said that um, if you have a dream in life and you get Mm. there, all of a sudden you have to be twice as good to deserve the right Mm -hmm. to do it Mm. again. And I know that for a lot of other people like, you know, rock stars that have had that smash first album and um yeah, like authors, like, yeah, yeah authors like um Harper Lee who wrote to um Kill a Mockingbird and then was so paralyzed by having to live up to the success of that she mm. never wrote anything again so going from one to two you said was really really tough and you had to dig deep mm. yeah the the unreasonable amount of expectation I placed on my shoulders actually suffocated me it prevented me from being able to show up and perform with the sense of joy and love and excitement that I had with my first world title so literally my first and seventh world titles were one in the state of love and the rest were in and you know two to five two to six were in a state of fear and it's like I said uh like you quoted me you know when you you're number one I mean, yeah, when you achieve your goal, all of a sudden you have to be twice, you think you have to be twice as good. And and I just, it was just unrealistic. It's just not even possible to be twice as Mm -hmm. good as you were yesterday, but it's certainly possible to be better, but to be twice as good overnight is just unrealistic. And and being, and so I was weighed down heavily by that expectation. And because of that weight of expectation, I was never really able to perform in a way that was going to enable me to achieve my goal of winning another event, let alone another world title. Mm. The the way that people described you then compared to the way, you know, the way that I've sort of experienced you dealing with you now and the, c- certainly hearing you being interviewed now, you sound like two different people. <laughs> um, 
Famously, famously, somebody said once, I think it was a journalist, said that you had the compassion of a tiger shark. (laughs) I can't even imagine you being like that. Did you feel like you had to be that way to keep sort of feeling confident? But I guess it was a false confidence, wasn't it? Yes, it was a false confidence. And it was a, it was a full facade. Um, And I had, I had subscribed to it so strongly that it was impossible for me to shift from it. Uh, until I had achieved what I was going after. You know, it was it was win at all costs. It was get out of my way. I'm going to bite you like a shark. I'm going to let you bleed out because I see you as in the way, not on the way. And I had zero compassion for my competitors, zero empathy for my competition, and I had zero empathy and compassion for myself, which is why I saw injuries and setbacks as just another obstacle to overcome. It wasn't, it wasn't, it was like a, an indication of my weakness that needed to be transferred into a strength and shifted and pushed past and moved on. Like I just never, I never honoured these things and now I'm in constant pain management because of the fact that I never allowed my body to heal properly from the injuries that had incurred throughout my career. Oh my gosh. Do you yeah. when you look back on yourself now and you think about yourself during that time, how mm. I mean, how do you do you you must have a lot of compassion for that young Lane? Yes, I do. I just want to put my arms around her and hold her and say, You are enough. You are loved. It's going to be okay. You haven't been rejected. You've actually been accepted and you're exactly where you need to be right now. You have everything you possibly need. You have the resources, the love, the skill, the work ethic. Everything is right there for you. Don't strive and push and and pull and, you know, because I was constantly striving without thriving and I never really saw that as anything other than what it was meant to be. You know, I... I I was so invested in struggle, so that's what I mean by that. I never saw it as anything other than that was the path I was meant to go on versus actually you're making it harder than it needs to be, Lane. Yeah. <laughs> I never took the time to stop and recognize that all of the pain, the suffering, the heartache, the struggle, the, yeah, all of that, it was, you know, it, it wasn't a necessary part of the journey, but I certainly made it one. I think it's hard though when you're an A-type personality and you've um, achieved certain things in your life by really pushing yourself and being tough on yourself and Mm. um, having that mindset and it's worked for you. Uh, It's kind of like rewarding bad behaviour and you know nothing Mm -hmm. else. So how do you know when to change, you know? Well, you have to stop and take a look at the mirror and ask yourself, is this working? Like is every aspect of my life in flow? And it's very difficult to stop and go, hey, is everything in my life perfect? Because that's not (laughs) the question. That's not what I'm saying. But it's the majority of the things that I'm doing supporting me and having a positive impact on the most important people in my life. If it's compromising the relationships that I have either with myself or my dream team, my tribe, my top five, then something needs to change. And it takes a lot of courage to look in the mirror and look in your own eyes and go, holy shit, this isn't working. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, it's okay. I'll just ignore that. I'll just keep get, just keep going. Just keep going because they'll forgive you in the end. Like just get on with it. Just don't even look. And so, we, you know, we push things to the peripheral and, and we just don't even want to look at what we know is not working. And 
the catalyst for me was after I won my sixth consecutive world title, I went into adrenal fatigue and then I thought, no, okay, I've just given myself six weeks. That's enough. Come on, Lane, let's go, let's go. Let's go win the seventh. You've got this. Um, and then I suffered a knee injury and then I suffered a neck injury and then I suffered another knee injury and then my body just broke and I had a, a career-ending and almost life-ending neck injury that required some pretty serious attention. And I gave it the attention and then it unraveled me. And I realized there were so many things propping me up. So if you're being propped up <laughs> by stimulants or sedatives or sex or uh, food or, you know, if you're being propped up by stuff all the time, then you need to have a good hard look at yourself in the mirror and go, okay, something is going to give. And you need to actually take control by recognizing that the way you're living your life is unsustainable. And that's either a choice that you make or it's a choice your life will make for you. Yeah, yeah. And it'll start with like tiny little nudge and then it'll oh, yeah. hit you with a sledgehammer, won't it? Yeah, well, the body whispers before it screams. Mm. This was when you had chronic fatigue really badly, wasn't it? Well, that's one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I had it twice. Um, yeah, right. And do you think, too, that neck injury, which was that the one that was caused by that giant wave crushing down on your neck? Was that that one? Well, uh, there was a few instances where waves crushed me. <laughs> there was a giant <laughs> one that crushed my lower back and folded me in half and my heels touched the back of my head and oh crushed my, my lumbar spine. But the one uh, that was like, two years later, I had a wave uh, land on the back of my neck and it herniated a disc in my neck and that was ended up severing 80% of my spinal cord. And Oh, my, my goodness. Yeah, that was painful. And I heard you describe that wave as being like, you know, as tall as the ceiling. I can't mm. even imagine what it would be like sitting there or, or however you were, swimming in the mm -hmm. water or standing on your board, whatever, mm. and watching something like that coming for you. What does that feel like? Yeah, well, you don't look up and say, hey, you're coming for me, are you? You, know, you keep your eyes <laughs> on the exit point. You keep looking where you're going. So I think it's such a great analogy for life. It's where you look is where you go. And because everything starts with your eye line, if you're looking up, then you'll stay going in that general direction. But if you're always looking down, then you, the nose of your board tends to follow your eye line. And that was the mistake that I made on this particular wave. I looked down, the nose of my board followed my eye line, and it took me right into the path of the thickest part of the lip, which landed on the back of my head. And uh, then my left arm went numb. And that was the beginning of a very uh, slow burn spiral into <laughs> pain, lots of pain, lots of discomfort. But I can push that out. I can, I can compete in immense pain. So yeah. <laughs> high, high threshold. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I read somewhere too that you won your third title with a broken back. So I think you've definitely proven your pain threshold. I won my, yeah, I won my second. So I did, I tore my knee in my second world title and I also won my second world title. Yeah, after that wave folded me in half and crushed my lumbar spine. So I wouldn't say I had a broken back, but I had a pretty sabotage or, or um, compromised lumbar spine. And then my third world title, I had a fractured rib. And then my fourth world title is when I did my neck. So, yeah, it was just this constant. Oh, goodness. <laughs> goodness gracious. Such a low-impact sport. Do you have one of those bodies now that, that creaks and cracks where you can? Yep. <laughs> yeah. 
have to see the contractor once a week. I bet you do. You'd be their favourite patient. Before we continue with this incredible conversation, I wanted to let you know that for the month of September, I'm taking 20% off my Becoming a Confident Communicator online course. This is seven video masterclasses plus workbooks you can keep forever. They're made just for time poor people. And I'm with you every step of the way, teaching you the exact techniques I use on TV and when I speak in public. It'll show you how to tell and sell your story with more poise and polish, whether you're on stage, on screen, or even on your socials. Head to katrinablowers.com and use the code SEPTEMBER20. That code again, SEPTEMBER20. You use that code at checkout for 20% off for September 2020 only. Okay, let's get back to the show. Let's go back to um, around that time when you were 24, around the time of your sixth world title where you were in a, a pretty bad way, not just physically but mentally, um, mm. you, you, you know, chronic fatigue and you've spoken publicly that you were having suicidal thoughts, which I really commend you for talking about that because okay. um, I, think that's, uh, I think that's a tough thing to come out and say because you never know how it's going to land. Um, sometimes you can't control the narrative of how that's going to be interpreted in the media, but uh, you, you've helped so many people by talking about it. So mm-hmm. how did that kind of manifest for you and when did you become aware that you really needed to do something positive um, to change that narrative in your mind? Sometimes it's easier for people outside of us to see what's going on within us more than we're willing to look at ourselves. You know, we're, I'm, as you said, I, I like putting on this sunny persona and this carefree disposition because I like to suffer in silence. So the less people know about what's going on within me, the better because then no one's going to call me on it. However, I do have very good friends and very loving friends who recognize the symptoms and recognize when things aren't okay and then have the the compassion for me to call me on it and um, so I know that I'm susceptible to states of depression because I've been there a couple of times and I know when I'm in a state of depression because I'm really I just feel numb there's nothing that brings me joy there's nothing that makes me excited there's nothing I look forward to I don't want to be seen I don't want to speak to anybody I would just want to hide away and that's not normal for me that's the opposite of who I am. So the first time I was experiencing these kind of numb thoughts was during my second bout of chronic fatigue where I ended up with suicidal tendencies and waking up and thinking of different ways to kill myself was the catalyst for me to go, okay, <laughs> this isn't normal. <laughs> I know I've been in this deep, dark place for quite some time now and no one can help me until I'm willing to help myself. So I got dissatisfied because I got really scared. I got scared that I was thinking this way and I went, okay, I need to do something now. And so that's when I had the courage to pick up the phone and ask for help. And uh, and I, I feel that, that that point that I just made is no one can make you do something until you get dissatisfied and have the courage to change it within yourself is the most important mm-hmm. part because most of the time we're waiting for somebody outside of us to tell us what to do and how to do it and, okay, it's going to be okay, but you have to be 
um, open and willing to take that action yourself. Yeah, I feel like sometimes we're all adults ourselves waiting for a grown-up to tell us what to do, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. 100%. Another story that you've told around that time, which I'm so fascinated with because it's a beautiful kind of demonstration of synchronicity, and you said that up until that point, up until that sixth title, you'd never really used music as a, mm-hmm. like a way to pump you up, but you decided that you would and you hit play and an Eminem song came on and then yeah. it kind of kept showing up for you. I would love yeah. you to tell that story. Oh, well, it could take me quite a while to do that, but we don't have that much time. So, so Lose Yourself by Eminem became my theme song for my sixth and seventh world title. Um, the power behind the lyrics is what really inspired me. So you got to lose yourself in the music. The moment you own it, you've only got one shot. Do not miss this chance to blow. This opportunity comes once in a lifetime. When we're kids, we feel like the opportunities to achieve our goals and our dreams and fulfill our ambitions is a finite opportunity or infinite opportunity. And then as we become older and wiser, we realize they're very finite. And I was sitting in the water talking myself out of winning my sixth consecutive world title because I was tired. I, was, I had fed up. I was angry. I was coming second. I was losing. And... um and I realized that these negative, uh, self-sabotaging, this dialogue that I was having was actually stopping me from stepping into the opportunity and, and getting out of my way and, you know, doing what I needed to do to achieve the outcome. So I, um, sat up on my board and I took a deep breath and I used a, an NLP technique that I'd learned in the lead up to this particular contest, which stands for neuro linguistic programming which helps us rewire the way we think and silence the chatter in our brains and I sat up and I took a deep breath and I replaced all the negative chatter with my mantra of I am is that your cat in the background that is my cat oh my god <laughs> well welcome to the podcast Vovo <laughs> oh what's his name was it he or she Vo- Vovo and he's deaf which is why his meow oh, is so loud because he can't so hear himself <laughs> oh that is awesome oh, how ironic that we're talking about music and he's yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. yeah. Anyway, I'm tuning into my internal dialogue. I've shifted from negative to positive. And right as I'm doing that, over the loudspeaker, because at surf contests, they just play loud music for no other reason but to entertain the crowd when there's no surfing to be watched. And Lose Yourself comes on over the loudspeaker. So I'm literally sitting in the water going, dun, 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 dun. You better lose yourself in the music the moment you want it. Um, <laughs> and then a wave came. And, that is uh, amazing. I owned it and I got out of my own way realising I had one shot and this next wave was my one shot ah. and I embraced it wholeheartedly. See, if you weren't a spiritual person before then, there's, yeah. I mean, that's that's crazy coincidence, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. Well, there's no such thing as coincidence. It's all a planned occurrence yeah. if you've read <laughs> The Philistine Prophecy. And um, then when I went to go and compete for my seventh world title, I. My preparation for events became very tactile as I became more competent and confident in my ability to prepare. And that particular year, I was very conscious of how I was feeling and and determined what state do I need to be in right now to get the best out of myself. So if I was too calm and relaxed, I would just put my iPod on and press play and see what came up and looking for music to jam, to jazz me up. And I was at Honolulu Bay. And uh, I was feeling really quite fatigued and the waves were really big. And I thought, okay, I need to rev up here. This is the first day and this is, you know, I've got to set 
set the standard. I'm, you know, I'm going for a seventh world title. I've got to let everyone know what I'm chasing. And the first thing that came on my iPod without even, without me even programming it was lose yourself. Ah, yeah. That's an omen. Yeah, that's a sign. (laughs) I'm I'm listening now. (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm going to lose myself out there. And oh my God, it was just the the waves were just phenomenal. And I felt so calm and relaxed when I got out there. I've got goosebumps listening to that story. I love it. I love it. Um, So you've said too that your seventh world title is one that you've definitely won in a state of love. I'm assuming by then you were doing all the things like meditating, um, mindfulness practices, really noticing your thoughts. Um, That's a really big turnaround. I guess you had a number of years though between six and seven to get that perspective and start doing those things yes I because I won my six in 2003 and then in 2004 and five I had severe injuries so I was kind of on and off the tour and then halfway through 2005 my neck decided to give out on me and so that's when I had to take some time out and so I took about six months out of the water and came back in 2006 to compete for my seventh world title and I invested basically six months into developing all of these different practices to help, but not with the intention to come back and compete, but with the intention to live with it and surf without pain for the first time since 2001. And I achieved that, and that to me was the victory itself. So competing was just an added bonus. Yeah. And you've also mentioned that after the sixth world title, you had like a really big revelation where a friend, a friend actually dropped a major truth bomb and said to you, Lane, what's actually driving you here? Do you think that this is all because you were adopted? First mm. of all, kudos, kudos to that friend for being mm. brave and honest in saying that because that could have gone either way, that conversation. Well, um, she's known me for a long time. But kudos to you also for sitting there and really processing that and mm. and using that as fuel, I guess, to change the whole direction of your life from that moment. Yeah, thank you. Yes, it was another one of those moments where I go, wow, yes, that's it. I've never been able to explain it. And it was that simple. It was as simple as having this fear that was driving me to be the best in the world, to be the most successful surfer, because that's how I had defined success. That's how I had defined not only success, but being worthy or just being enough, actually. That's how I defined it. I'm not going to be enough until I become the best, the best of the best of the best. How do you define enough? Um, for me, it's I'm really led by the way that I feel about things now, so tapping into my intuition. So if mm. an opportunity to me, um, I feel that sort of grasping energy of I should do this or um, I'm comparing myself to other people and using that as a motivation for thinking that I have to do something, then I know that I'm not on track. And often mm. I like to think that I'm more in tune with that now, but sometimes I still catch myself and I go down the path and I have to really pull myself up. Mm. Um, I meditate every day too and I found yeah. that to be a game changer mm. just in terms Me of getting too. quiet with yourself and creating yeah. that space to really sit with things so for me it's when I'm feeling calm 
I use mm. the word calm as a really great kind of um, north star, I guess. When mm. I'm feeling calm, that's when I know that I feel enough. I feel like everything's where it's meant to be. Um, yeah, so that's that's the energy that I'm really seeking when I think about doing things now, not so much to prove to other people that mm. I can do it or to prove to myself that I can do it, but when I've yeah. got the really calm, peaceful feeling. Great. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Still working it out though. It's a daily process. Oh, but that, actually, I teach that in my course, but that's what I talk about in regards to your decision-making framework. If there's a, a should or would or a could involved in your decision-making, then it's a no. Yeah. Because it's not aligned really with who you want. It's, it's aligned more with a barrier, which is a scarcity mentality or measuring up to expectations or a fear of letting people down. So. Yeah, if it comes from the heart. I love the way you talk about that scarcity, that scarcity mentality, um, because a lot of people talk about scarcity and abundance in terms Mm. of money, but Mm. um, you talk about it in terms of just life and the way that you see life and the way that you see opportunities. Yes, yeah, because scarcity isn't like just, yeah, it's not just abundance, it's not just money, it's time, it's energy, it's relationships, it's opportunities and yeah so that's the way I'm always framing it and um, it also exists in the future it or the past it doesn't exist in the present moment so it's actually a matter of keeping yourself centered in the present moment and then that helps you make the most compassionate and wise response versus projecting or reflecting and then going oh well if I, because when we project, it increases our anxiety, and when we reflect, it increases our anger, and then that sabotages the decision that we make in our present moment. Yeah, let's go to when you made that decision to retire in two thousand and eight. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Correct. How did you? How did you know? How did you know when to walk away? Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that after defining yourself as Lane Beachley world champion surfer, it would have mm-hmm. been really tough to go to whatever was next after that. Mm. And that's the thing. Most people think that you retire and then go to something. <laughs> but there's, uh, there's nothing that can replicate standing on the podium being sprayed down with champagne with a title trophy, like a world title trophy in your hand. <laughs> so you never go to anything <laughs> from there. Um The decision was an easy one to make. It was as simple as asking myself, am I willing to do the work outside of the water to generate the results I expect of myself in the water? Yes, no, no, I'm not. Like, I'm exhausted. I'm done. (laughs) I've got enough. I'm satisfied. (laughs) Yeah. My passion is waning. I want to pursue all these other things that are going on in my life. I still love surfing. I still surf every single day. I still have the love and passion for the sport that became a vocation. And uh, now it's time to go and invest my energy in developing skills outside of the water. So I had, at the time, I had my charity. I had a clothing brand. I had the richest surfing event in the world. I had speaking engagements. I mean, my dance card was full by the time I left the tour, but none of it was as rewarding as standing on a podium and being sprayed with champagne. Mm. So once again, I had to be realistic about what my expectations were. And I must admit, it took me about four years to to adjust to retirement because of a variety of different things. But ultimately, I felt like I'd lost my sense of identity 
and it was time for me to create a whole new one. Yeah. Given we're talking about confidence, I really, um, it made me feel better, I guess, because you have done all of these extraordinary things and then you've retired and you said that your first live TV interview, you got stage fright and this made me laugh. You received a formal written complaint after your first motivational (laughs) keynote. (laughs) Yes, I was a bit more failure at most things that I pursued that became (laughs) successful at. You know, I came dead last in the first event I ever competed in. The first time I ever did radio, I I could not stand the sound of my own voice. So it took me about 1170 takes. Um, (laughs) I um, got stage fright the first time I did live television. And yes, the first motivational keynote I ever gave, which was actually after I won my fifth world title or my sixth world title, somewhere around there, um, I, uh, yeah, I received a formal written complaint. <laughs> so just <laughs> indication that I needed to lift my standard, lift my game, work a little harder, do things a little differently. Yeah, but, you know, the confidence to then, because public speaking is, you know, one of the most common fears. I think it beats spiders and everything else. Um, <laughs> so to get back out there again and know that you had something to contribute, how mm. did you do that? You know what, on, after I left the particular, and I'll never forget this gig, but after I left, I jumped in the car and I was driving back to the airport and I rang um my dearest honesty barometer and mentor, Guy Leach, who was one of the guys that came into my house when I was competing for my sixth world title unannounced and said, you need to pull your head out of your ass because you're obviously not doing what's required of you to get the job done. He is always on the end of the phone for me. And I rang him and I said, I've just completely balled up my first keynote. And he said, what happened? And I told him, he's like, all right, so what are you going to do about it? And I said, I need help. He's like, all right, well, here's someone you can go and see. So, just having someone at the end of the line where you can share your disappointments to go, oh, my goodness, that was such a dismal failure. Like, yep, okay, cool, yep, learn from it. So now what are you going to do about it and hold me accountable for taking action? So that's what I did. And that seems to be a consistent theme in my life. And have a laugh at yourself as yeah, well. I think, totally. you know, like so often we just take things way too seriously and then we get up all in our own head with the negative self-talk instead of just having a laugh. And imagine if you'd stopped them because you now are such an amazing keynote speaker. You Thank would have you. never had that opportunity to go on and improve and now inspire all the people that you do. Exactly. And I've actually reached out to that company and offered them a free keynote because they really set me <laughs> On the, they set me on the path. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a cracker story. Yeah. And the other thing that I would love before we just get to what you're doing now with the workshops, mm-hmm. um, I would love for you to share uh, how you begin your days with your mantras and how you have these words that you use that you really identify with, they're positive words, and you say them to yourself a lot and what they mean to you. And I, I guess for other people listening how that could help for them as well yeah so today in Sydney it's wet it's cold it's drizzly which tends to really dampen my emotions and my behaviors and my thoughts I'm um, I'm a real sun lover I'm my emotions can ebb and flow with the environment that I'm in and so I know I was walking back from a an interview uh, down at a cafe in Freshwater and I was noticing that 
just my eyes were always down and I was slumped in my posture and I really wasn't feeling good within myself. So similar to what you said about it all comes down to how I'm feeling, I recognized how I was feeling and I thought, I don't, I don't need to be feeling this way. Like this isn't who I am. And I started tuning into some of the things I was saying to myself and none of it was positive. And I thought to myself again, this isn't who I am. And so I literally, I took a deep breath and I pulled my shoulders back and I recited my mantra, which is, I am happy, I am healthy, I am fit, I am strong. And then I have a whole other mantra that goes around that, being grateful for things and, and asking myself this question, like, why am I so happy and why am I so healthy and why am I so fit and why am I so strong? Because when you start the question with a why, then your subconscious starts looking for the positive answers to answer the positive questions versus looking for all the negative things that are going on in your life. Um, and that really lifted my spirits. And so I start every day with that because it's very easy to wake up and go, oh, fuck, it's Groundhog Day. Here we go. COVID <laughs> day, lockdown 5,717. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. this is going to be exhausting. Um, it's very easy to get swept up in the negativity, the fear, uh, the sensationalism that's going on and all the negativity that's being, you know, burst through all of our media outlets. So I choose to disconnect from that and connect firstly with who I am, what I stand for, what I believe about myself. Then I start my day. And I think this is what's so powerful and why the work you're doing now with your academy will really resonate with so many people is because you, A, are super vulnerable about what you've been through and what it's taken you to get to where you are today. But you also Mm. say really openly, I still struggle with this stuff from time to time and this is what I do to get back on track. Um, Mm. What kinds of things are you, is it workshops, is it online courses? What kinds of things are you doing now? So Awake Academy is a um, an online portal that's uh, with a mission of awakening people to detach from fear and take control of their life and actually live a life they love by design, not by default. And so I've designed an online course called Own Your Truth, and it's a no-bullshit seven-round online course to unlock your internal GPS. Essentially, the tagline is, it's time to wake up, own your shit, and trust in love. And what I share with people throughout that course is all along the lines of what we've spoken about over the last 45 minutes. It's about the the way that fear used to dominate my life and the lessons that I've learned and how I learned to detach from fear and start trusting in love. But by utilizing meditation and my I am mantra, recognizing my stories and the triggers that, that are associated with them, the judgments, the criticism, um, rewriting those stories and then fortifying myself with my dream team and communicating very clearly and, and identifying who in my life are my honesty barometers versus my dream team and then awakening my energy with all of the things that I've spoken about, such as my I am mantra, winning the morning, celebrating growth, celebrating failure, um, inviting more play into my life. And then I introduce people to a thing that I refer to as my seven doctors, which are just seven things that I do on a daily basis that boost my my overall sense of well-being and happiness. So this is full of truth bombs to help people own their truth. 
So good. This sounds yeah. incredible. It's and fun. it comes from a lot of tough lessons that you've had to learn the hard way. So people yeah. get the gift of that. Exactly. <laughs> well, nicely I'm, packaged up. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I've, I've basically designed the course to help shortcut the struggle. You know, and mm. I, when I'm on stage, I often ask people, you know, who here believes success has to be hard? And 80 to 90% of the audience raise their hand. And I said, well, here's mm. the thing. We're constantly seeking proof of what we believe. If you believe it has to be hard, you will continue to find evidence that it will be hard and that will support your belief. Whereas this course, Own Your Truth, helps you to detach from these negative or self-limiting beliefs, detach from the struggle and start bringing in a little bit more flow, like detach from fear, bring back the fun, find your flow, like let's start designing the life that we love versus being dictated to by external circumstances and considering the times that we currently live in, the world needs more joy, the world needs more happiness, the world needs more confidence and centeredness and connection, and that's what this course aims to bring you. So I'm not here to fix people, but I'm certainly going to give you the tools to help you shine a light in the darkness because we need to bring more light and happiness to this planet. Now, I have um, a few questions that we always finish up on. Mm -hmm. If someone was to come to you and mm -hmm. ask you for a confidence tip, a quick go-to hack, what would be a good piece of advice that you could give them? Oh, grab an I am mantra. Just grab three or four words that you resonate with, that you can visualize what those words actually look and feel like within you and just keep coming back to them. Is there a book that you've read? I know you've read so many great yeah. books um, uh, that's really helped you on your way in your confidence story. And I will be linking to your book in the show notes because that is an amazing read. Oh, thank you. Uh, cool. One book? <laughs> <laughs> Putting you on the spot. Um, Actually, I read that you read Conversations with God quite yes. sort of early on and that had a profound impact on you. Yeah, oh, yeah, that really impacted on me as well. I love that book. Yeah, I read The Celestine Prophecy in the year 2000 and then Conversations with God, with God in 2003 and that was really, that's where I learnt the power of I am. Actually, hmm. so yeah, let's go with that. Let's go with conversation. Yeah. yeah, amazing. Which is not as religious as it sounds. It's quite a no. Quite honestly, when someone handed it to me, I said, "Listen, I am way too busy to talk with God right now. I've got a world title <laughs> I need to win. So, can I just come back to this later?" <laughs> now, apart from surfing, because we know yes. that that's what you do for pure joy, what mm. else do you do for pure joy that has no outcome attached to it? Um. Nap? Oh, Nana naps. Oh, there's the best. <laughs> I love them. Uh, baking. Oh. I love to bake. I know these are probably very surprising answers. Yes. Um, bush, bush walking. Yes. And catching up with friends. Beautiful. And I see you often take friends out on your bushwalks. You often post beautiful pictures oh, yes. on your Instagram about that. We're planning one this weekend. Oh, divine. And mm -hmm. finally, Lane, what mm. are you working on right now in your own confidence journey to take you to where you next want to be in life? I am working with a mentor to help me own the space that I have just stepped into. So I've been a speaker for 10 years and I, I the way that I present this is that I have had the confidence to stand up on stage, vomit on my audience and walk out. 
And now I'm stepping into a space where I'm saying, actually, you know what? There's a lot more we need to go into and I'm here to go into it with you. I'm not going to expect you to go anywhere. I haven't been myself. So I'm taking you on a journey through my own life lessons and my own experiences and I have to have the courage to stay in that space and share that with the world without the fear or, or detached from the fear of the rejection of standing firm in who I know I truly am. That's amazing. What a beautiful answer. And I cannot wait to see what is next for you in this next evolution of what you're going to bring to the world. Thank you so much for everything that you've shared with us today, Lane. Thank you so much for having me, Katrina. It's been great to have a chat with you. Stay connected by following Claiming Your Confidence or me, Katrina Blowers, on Instagram. For more information on this or other episodes, head to katrinablowers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and make sure you share it with anyone you think would benefit from a confidence pick-me-up. Claiming Your Confidence is created and produced by me, Katrina Blowers. Audio thanks to Turn. Term 6 podcast productions. I hope you're having a great week. Thank you for listening to Claiming Your Confidence.